Any of you guys big fans of New Year's Eve? Got, got, got a few? Got one or two? I was talking to Mike earlier. The time between Christmas and New Year's is good and restful, but I feel like I hate when it gets to a point where there's just no structure. Everything's like just kind of loosey-goosey and like I just want rhythm. I want structure. Like I thrive in that and I don't thrive when there's nothing. So I can't wait for things to get back to normal. Um, I Perhaps I could just be robotic through the whole year, but I guess I got to stop every now and then and just be. So that's what I'm trying to do. Until tomorrow. Then we're on. But here we are, uh, end of one year, beginning of another. For a lot of people, it's a time of reflection. Last last week's prayer focus was looking back. What did God accomplish through you, through our church, through your family, through whatever it is that he's doing in your life? Acknowledging it, praising him for it. We should do that at some point if you haven't really looked back. Specifically about the way God has used you and worked through you. That's a very powerful thing to do for your faith. While you journal things and you write down things, you can go back and reread and look at and see how God moved and answered your prayers. This week, Keith reminded us that our prayer focus is looking forward now. Okay, here we go. 2024, a new year. Many of you set goals. You have designs for improving your life for uh, a variety of different categories. How many of you are goal setters? All right. How many of you are the New Year's resolution kind of people? Not very many. That's fine. I'm not a New Year's resolution person either, but I do like having goals and things that I want to accomplish. I think there's a difference there. There's some things about New Year's resolutions that kind of fade quickly. But if you have tangible, like, here's where I want to go and here's what I want to accomplish, man, this is the perfect time of year to do that. And I would encourage every person in the room that is able to pray this prayer to do that. Lord, what do you want to do in my life in 2024? What ways specifically do you want me to grow and mature in 2024? The question we like to ask ourselves in circles that I run in sometimes is, It's December 31st, 2024. Where are you and what will have to have had accomplished to get you where you want to be a year from today? Think big picture. Think large scale. Think big God. Right? Let's start incorporating some of these things into how we look at what we bring to the Lord in terms of questions. So we're going to pray that right now. And then I'm going to give you the message. So let's pray. God, thank you for today, another day of life. Thank you for another year on this planet. God, we praise you for the ways in which you have worked in this past year. Lord, we've seen your evidence of grace and mercy and goodness, God. This church has been sustained. It's grown. We've seen people and uh, transitions and, and lives impacted and people saved and the gospel going out. Lord, there's countless ways that we can praise you for the things that you've done in this past year. And all of those things serve really, Lord, to give us hope and expectation for the things that you want to do this coming year. And so, God, we ask that question of you right now. Each one of us, in our own hearts and minds, Lord, what do you want from us in 2024? What ways specifically do you want us to grow, to mature? Help us even in this service, God, to hear from your spirit, to hear from your word, to have tangible things that we can put down on paper, in our hearts, and in our minds, a direction for growth and change. 
God, because that's what you want of us. You want us to continue to become more like you and less like ourselves. That's part of this journey that you've got us on, Lord. So if we remain the same, we remain static, we're actually moving backwards, Lord, that's not what you want. So help us in this very, very unique time of looking back and looking forward. Lord, guide us this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you have questions about anything you hear today, you can text them to that number on the screen. Mike and I will come up at the end of the service and we'd love to interact. Just a way that we continue to keep you guys engaged and involved. Love to interact with you guys. Questions, text them to that number and we'll answer them at the end of the service. So I think when we we consider the idea of improving or maturing in this life, doing our best, certain terms come to mind. At least they do for me. And one of the things that always soars to the top of my mind um, is excellence, doing things with excellence, especially within Christian circles. How many of you have heard that phrase about trying to do your best? you got to do things with excellence, right? That, that's a very familiar term, I think. Um, and I, the word excellence, though, part of the challenge is it means different things to different people. And I think, in fact, it can actually alienate people or put people at a distance or unintentionally push them away from wanting to improve or grow. I know in my growing up experience, growing up in church, not growing up in life, I I didn't become a Christian until I was 26 years old. And now here I am at 36 years old. That's funny? What? Okay, fine. 46. 47. Whatever. The church that I was saved in long, long time ago was very big on the idea of doing things with a spirit of excellence. And I came in as a young sergeant. I'm like, yeah, I can get behind this. Let's do things with a spirit of excellence. But the spirit behind the spirit, I learned later, wasn't as healthy as maybe it was portrayed as. It was more about the final product, what people saw, rather than a God-enabled ability to grow and mature as we sought to improve and how we served and loved the Lord. A pursuit of excellence, though, I'm, I'm pretty convinced, <laughs> is a good and biblical thing as we look at the scriptures. But I think we have to clearly define terms. What do we mean by that? What are the parameters when we talk about doing things with excellence, <coughs> pursuing excellence in the church? I read a quote from a guy named Harold Dean, who's the well, Harold Best, rather, who's the dean of the Conservatory of Music at Wheaton College. And I think it's a very godly view of this idea. He says, excellence is the process of becoming better than I once was. I am not to become better than someone else is or even like someone else. Excellence is the process of becoming better than I once was. I love that because it's something that we all ought to pursue, right? We all want to be better than we once were. And take a step closer, I think, to what the Lord has in mind on this topic. I'll add that excellence is ultimately about stewardship. Stewardship is going to come up a lot today. So rightly managing, utilizing what God has given us and he's entrusted us with. Could be your abilities, your giftings, your positions, your status, money, influence, time, relationships. Doesn't matter what it is that God has given you. Pursuing things with excellence comes down to stewardship. He expects us to take care of what we've been given. 
to maximize and use whatever these things may be for our good and for God's glory. So let's look at a familiar example from Jesus himself. Let's go to Matthew 25. Let's go to Matthew 25. We're going to look at the parable of the talents. Talents not meaning like some of the people on the stage have talent. Not that kind of talent. But let's read and see if we can figure out what kind of talents we're talking about here. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. This is Jesus speaking. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here, and I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into joy, the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here, I have made you two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers. At, the, at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Parable about stewardship. Jesus illustrated godly excellence in this parable, I believe. In the narrative, the master of the household acknowledges the individual's giftings and talents. Right? That's what he said. He gave each according to their ability. Then he holds them individually accountable for what they received from him. And then rather than endorsing a cautious approach, which the last person was cautious, like, I don't know what to do. He didn't endorse that. He, he applauds those who fearlessly and boldly utilize their giftings, wanting to become better than before, like Best says. Notice, though, our master doesn't measure achievements against others. God recognizes and rewards all those who diligently ma- um, manage their giftings with excellence, ultimately leading, as we saw of the joy of being in the master's presence. We talked um, two weeks ago about the idea of this life being uh, a preparation for receiving the inheritance that we've been given, right? We're being prepared in this life for what is to come. I think this fits into that. Part of what we're doing here is not just preparing for the life to come, but it's stewarding what we do have now in order to bring glory to God. That's part of what we do when we steward things well. 
So it's critical that in our pursuit of growth and excellence that we realize that this is about our journey and nobody else's. This is not a comparison or a competition with others. I forget who says it. I'm not sure I ever knew, but I'm sure you're familiar with a quote that says, comparison is the thief of joy, right? You start to compare with other people, other things. This robs you of your joy, robs you of what God wants to do through you. And so let's, let's not do that. There are no two alike in this room. There's some similarities, but you are all unique. Every one of us, God has made the way that he made us. Make sure you embrace this truth because that's actually how God intends for you to thrive in this life, by using what he's given you. Even if at times it feels like a disadvantage right, or a weakness, God knew what he was doing when he created you, what he did when he knitted you together in your mother's womb. And God does not make mistakes. He knows who you are because he created you uniquely to do what he's called you to do in this life. So if you want to compare, you can do that, but do it vertically and not horizontally. Don't compare this way. You want to compare, compare yourself to God's standard and what he's called each of us to. That's fine. Do that. (laughs) Aiming for excellence with a godly perspective means focusing our connection with God first. We have to be rooted and grounded in him first and foremost before we try to do anything with excellence. Our connection here. John 15 talks about abiding in God. And being removed from him means no fruit. Like, if you remain in me, I remain in you. Like, there's this promise of staying connected to the vine. And if we separate, basically he says we wither and die and we're thrown into the fire. That sounds terrible. Don't want any part of that. <laughs> so we got to remain and abide in him. So when we pay attention to the qualities of God in the gospel, it shapes us to have a humble heart and a mindset of taking care of what God has entrusted to us. This changes the way we think about true excellence. Think for a moment, why do we ultimately want to do things with excellence and stand out? Well, Keith read it in our scripture today. Because we've been called to be ambassadors for Christ. Right? We're his representatives. Whether you want to be or not, if you raise your hand and say, I'm a believer... You are an ambassador. You are his representatives on this planet. And we've talked about it in the past. Mike has brought up the idea of sometimes some of the worst workers claim faith, claim Christianity. The laziest people, the ones who give the Lord a bad name. It's a terrible thing to do. But we want to pursue excellence and stand out because we're his representatives and we want to represent him well. We want to bring him glory in all things. Not only that, though, because we're image bearers of God. And God only does things with excellence. You think about that? God only does things with excellence. And we are in his image and likeness, so we ought also to pursue excellence. I'm not talking about perfection. Nobody in this room is perfect. We're not striving for perfection, we're striving for obedience. Okay? So as his image bears, let's strive to imitate him, steward well the talents, the abilities, the resources that he's given to us. 
So then pursuing excellence becomes our prayerful, grace-driven, spirit-enabled work to faithfully reflect a holy God in every circumstance. But when we strive to live a godly life, we can't help but be shaped by the truth of the gospel with our focus on him first and foremost. This transformation, it, 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 it inspires us to want to be better stewards of what we've been given. It should inspire us to want to do better in stewarding what you've given us. Do you notice how this pursuit of excellence is way different than the world? The world's definition of pursuit of excellence is doing better than those around you. Like That's what pursuing excellence in the world looks like. So remove that from your mind in this setting. If your workplace or your, your, your occupation or what you are doing requires you to do things with excellence to, to exceed those around you, then by all means. But in, in God's context, in his setting, it's about pursuing what he wants for you in your life and stewarding well what he's given you. With God getting the credit and not us. Look at Matthew 5, 14 through 16. We'll look at one more thing about this idea. You are the light of the world. You, we, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We, the church, are that city on a hill. We are the light that cannot be extinguished. Right? So we want to be a good light, a bright light, illuminating the proper things. But what was the end reason? That we might give glory to our fathers in heaven. That's the whole aim of what he's talking about. God getting the credit and not us. I want to give two biblical examples of this kind of pursuit of excellence as, as we kind of wrap things up. Let me ask you this. Can you think of anyone from the Old Testament who was a, just a shining example of stewardship and excellence, and even in the midst of tremendous struggles and difficulties? I got Joseph, David, Job, Esther. Joshua. Who? Job. Job. Yeah, Ruth. So there's a lot. Yeah, more than more than I expect you to give me. So thank, thank you for that. One of those, we'll talk about Joseph. And the other one that I don't think I heard was Daniel. 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 Good. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to read to you a brief summary because it's better that I do that than try to piece something together. Um, Daniel and Joseph, thinking about their examples and their pursuit of excellence. So Joseph's journey began in the warmth of his father's favor, but led swiftly to betrayal and enslavement. Despite the harsh circumstances, Joseph clung to his moral compass, resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife and choosing righteousness over convenience. I love that. This commitment to virtue wasn't merely a personal choice. It became a testament to God's presence and plan. Through the trials of slavery and imprisonment, Joseph held fast to his integrity, showcasing that even in the grimmest circumstances, a commitment to righteousness can lead to eventual prominence as he rose to second in command over all of Egypt. Brief summary of Joseph. Similarly, in the foreign courts of Babylon, Daniel's 
steady commitment to virtue defined his rise to prominence. When faced with the challenge of adapting to Babylonian practices, Daniel chose a path of moral integrity. His refusal to compromise on matters of diet and worship demonstrated that virtue was not negotiable. Daniel's stewardship of integrity, rooted in his reverence for God's laws, distinguished him in the eyes of both God and earthly rulers. Joseph and Daniel, though separated by time and circumstances, shared a common thread of stewarding their integrity and virtue amidst adversity. Their narratives remind us that in the pursuit of faithfulness, the stewardship of moral character is a guiding light. Their rise to prominence was not merely a result of their talents or circumstances. It was a testament to the transformative power of a firm commitment to righteousness in the face of challenges. Within the fabric of their narratives, Joseph and Daniel stand as enduring examples of upholding integrity and virtue, emphasizing that stewardship rather than prominence leaves a lasting impression on life's journey. So just two simple examples of, of men in the Bible who basically stood firm on what God had entrusted them with, the position that he'd given them, not looking at the circumstances around them and allowing that to influence what they did, rather chose to steward their integrity and their position to honor God. And eventually, we see them both rise to prominence Excellence is ultimately about stewardship, becoming better than I once was. What do you have? Think about this as we, as we close. What do you have that God has given you that we must steward well? What do you have right now that God has given you that you must steward well? Think about the parable, the talents, and realize that God intends for you personally to leverage what he's given you, what he's blessed you with for the sake of the kingdom of God. So do a little spiritual inventory. Do a little lifestyle inventory. Influence inventory. Relationship inventory. Time, calendar inventory. What has he given you right now in this season that you need to steward in order to see God's kingdom grow and his name be made great. We need to go all in for the kingdom of God. So we start with a question. We're going to end with a question. How does God want you to grow in 2024? Not comparing yourself to those around you, but becoming better than you once were. Strongly encourage you not to let your eyelids close for the night without Truly considering this question, asking it of the Lord, and then writing down what he says. I can't hold you to it. But I can strongly recommend and encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, for the reminders of your, your goodness, your mercies that are new every morning. It's so evident, God, that you... You love us, that you're for us, that you have a plan for our lives, that you want for us to use what you have given us. And Lord, I thank you for every person in this room whom you have uniquely gifted. I think that's amazing, God. And you are so 
caring and considerate of your creation, God, that you made us all a certain way to do certain things. And so, Father, as we ask that question today, I pray that you would lead us to a clear answer of what you'd want for us in this next year. Knowing, God, that part of what you've instilled in us as a church is the idea of a willingness to do the next hard thing. What is the next hard thing that you want for us to do in our spiritual journey? Knowing, God, that you've equipped us for every good work. That you don't leave us to our own devices or to figure things out for our own, God. You've given us what we need. God, help us now to employ those things in order to walk in obedience, to walk in faith, to be the ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, and the proclaimers of truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that's why we're here. Help us to do it well, with excellence, becoming better than we once were. We need your help, and we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand up? We're going to sing a song in response. We're going to sing about the goodness of God. Just raise your voices and rejoice together.